0: we're going to read from the scriptures if you turn over with me to um, the book of Isaiah Isaiah chapter 33 could I encourage you to come to the verse 13 Isaiah 33 verse 13 let's hear the word of the Lord Isaiah 13, sorry, Isaiah 33, verse 13. Hear ye that are far off what I have done. And ye that are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness have surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood and shutting his eyes from seeing evil, he shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him. His water shall be sure. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. Thine heart shall meditate terror. Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counted the tars? Thou shalt not see a fierce people, a people of deeper speech than thou canst perceive, of a stammering tongue that thou canst not understand. Look upon Zion. The city of our solemnities Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem A quiet habitation A tabernacle that shall not be taken down Not one of the stakes thereof Shall ever be removed Neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken But there the glorious Lord Will be unto us a place of broad rivers And streams Wherein shall go no galley with oars Neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Thy tacklings are loosed. They could not well strengthen their mask. They could not spread the seal. Then is the prey of a great spoil divided. The lame take the prey, and the inhabitant shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. Amen. We know the Lord will bless to us this, what seems a strange reading from the Word of God this morning. Now, my text this morning is taken from Isaiah 33 and the verse 17. Isaiah 33, verse 17, it reads as follows. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. Now, my theme today is simply entitled Seeing the Beauty of the King. These words were spoken by the prophet Isaiah to the princes of Judah and the elders of Israel as a wonderful promise from God in a day of trouble and in a day of woe. See, these particular words were meant as a promise from God to cheer the heart of the king and encourage God's people that they wouldn't be forsaken, that they wouldn't be forgotten by the Lord at this time. Now think of the context. Let's think of the house of God. And in the house of God, there's a solitary figure kneeling in prayer. This man's wearing sackcloth upon his body. He's got ashes on his head and on his face. He's full of sorrow. He's full of worry. He's full of misery. So we have right to ask, well, who is he? And why is he so sad? Well, the answer is, his name is King Hezekiah. He's the king of Judah. And he's laid aside for a time his royal robes. He's took off his golden crown. He's put on the garments of humiliation and misery. He's waiting on God in a attitude of prayer. And as I've said, he's full of worry and vexation of spirit. It's written all over his face. This man is in a very sad state. Why? Here's the answer. According to 2 Kings 18, Zennacherib, who's the king of Assyria, that's a neighboring country to Israel, he has invaded the land of Israel, with a huge army. And this vast cruel army have easily overrun the northern kingdom and he's now marching towards Jerusalem and he intends to conquer it. A letter has been sent to Hezekiah by the hand of a general called Rab Shekah, one of Sennacherib's generals, and it contains a very riling, blasphemous message to the king. And literally, if I paraphrase, the people of Judah have been told, don't listen to your king Hezekiah. He is not able to deliver you. Even if we were to lend you 2,000 horses, you don't have cavalrymen or riders to sit on these horses to go to battle. We're going to take this city. We're going to destroy it. We are very confident of victory. There's no way of escape. You have no chance of winning. Now I have no doubt that when that message was read in the presence of the king, that this was a terrifying, boastful message that was designed to traumatize and terrorize God's people. So Hezekiah the king humbled himself before the Lord. He went into the house of God. He put on this sackcloth. He began to mourn. He began to weep and he began to pray. And he sent the princes and the elders to consult with Isaiah the prophet so that he could know what to do about this invasion. And what King Hezekiah wanted to know was this, are we going to be destroyed? Are we going to be butchered by this cruel enemy? Now here is part of Isaiah's reply. Listen to these words. This is what he told the princes and the elders. "Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty they shall behold the land that is very far off. You see, this is the Lord's promise. Isaiah is saying to the king through his princes and elders, don't worry, don't be afraid because you're going to see your king again dressed in his beautiful garments and you're going to see the land And the land is going to be spared. It will not be destroyed and overrun at this time. Jerusalem will be saved because the battle is the Lord's, and the Lord will fight for you, and the Lord will show himself strong on your behalf. Now, this was a tremendous prophecy here. This was a wonderful promise from God that had a literal fulfillment. The people of Judah would see their king Hezekiah dress once more, even though he had a period of humiliation. He would. They would see him once more in a state of exaltation. They would see the king with a smile on his face. A king dressed in his royal robes with the crown in his hand. The scepter in his hand. Now all that that I've just told you is part of the literal historical context of Isaiah 33 verse 17. And you can compare it with 2 Kings 18 and 19. But as I've read this text of Scripture, yesterday, Friday evening when I came home from the Minister's Week of Prayer, I saw a picture of a nobler and a greater King than King Hezekiah. Yes, it has a literal, historical fulfillment, but I believe it also has a greater and a nobler spiritual fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. As king of kings and lord of lords. And as I looked at this text. And this was my prayer for you this morning. I said to the Lord on Friday when I came home from the ministry week of prayer. Lord I want to see Christ on Sunday. What could I preach on Lord? And as I thought of seeing Christ. These words thine eye shall see the king and his beauty. Were brought to my attention. And I knew straight away, Lord, there's the message for Sunday. Thank you, Lord. Now, what can we learn from these words? Four things, and I'll, I'll try to be brief. I want you to think of the supremacy of the king. Notice the words in the text Thine eyes shall see the king, the king. There's the supremacy of the king, the king. See, Jesus Christ is our King now. He's our King today. He always has been the King and forever will be the King. Revelation 19 and 6 tells us, and his name shall be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We'll come back to that. But as a church, we believe in the royal dignity and kingship of Jesus Christ now. now. Listen to me carefully. He's not waiting to be made king. He is already king now. Can you grasp that? Look at the context. How do I know this is a reference to Jesus Christ as king? Isaiah 33 and 22 says, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. And of course, the verse 5 talks about exaltation. The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. Verse 10, now will I arise, saith the Lord, now will I be exalted, now will I lift up myself. John Calvin in his commentary says this. This is a type of the kingship of Christ whose image Hezekiah bears but only in a slight fulfillment of the promise if we can't see or trace Christ here. See, I believe Christ is here. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty, literally fulfilled in Hezekiah, but spiritually fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Why? For the Lord is our king. You see, he's a king by right. He's a king, remember, because of God's decrees. Psalm 2, verse 6, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, and I could add so many scriptures. You see, the Lord Jesus is king of heaven and king of earth by virtue this morning of his person. Remember who he is. He's very God of very God, and yet very man of very man, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. Who could be the king of the world, the king of the universe, the king of heaven, but God himself? And do you know he has a right to rule the world in total sovereignty and with absolute dominion? Because he is this world's creator and maker. If he made us and he fashioned us and gives us life and provides for us, then why shouldn't he rule us? Can the potter... Not design the clay pot According to his mind and his will Remember He Upholds all things Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 18 By him all things consist That means all things are held together He's not only the creator of this world But he's its preserver And upholder Nothing's by accident Everything's by design and purpose He's king by right. He's king by redemption. See, the Lord Jesus is not only a rightful king, but he's a redeemer king. You think of the period of Hezekiah's humiliation and then his exaltation. Think of Christ and his humiliation. Christ, was he not called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Think of the Lord Jesus in the days of his flesh. Think of all he endured from his birth during his life. Surely we could say when we think about him and the 33 years that he lived on earth, there's no sorrow or suffering like unto his. We we ponder his incarnation, the mystery of it. At least I I try to do. I think of the fulfillment of his virgin birth. I I think of the sinless life, his atoning death. I, I think of how on the cross he conquered sin and death and hell and the devil, all by the victory and the power of his shed blood. Do you know something else? He's king by resurrection. Turn over there this morning to Psalm 24. I'm deliberately not trying to bombard you with scriptures, but but look at this scripture. I want you to think of the Lord Jesus having died on the cross. I want you to think of his resurrection taking place, his return to heaven with the blood sacrifice. Of himself. Psalm 24 and 7 says. Lift up your heads. O ye gates. And be ye lift up. Ye everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. And then it asks in verse 8. Who is this king of glory? And here's the answer. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads. O ye gates. Even lift them up. Ye everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come Come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. After his death and and, and bodily resurrection from the dead, this is about his return to heaven. And he's entering in there as the King of glory. He's no longer wearing the robes of misery and sorrow. He now has the robes of majesty and splendor. He's dressed in a garment down to the foot. He's got a golden girdle. He's crowned with many crowns. See, the Lord Jesus is a resurrected king. I'll tell you something else, he's a reigning king. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Having led his people captive, and we are his spoil, we are his treasure. And he's sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning now, and he's total authority, total dominion, total supremacy over the world. He alone's the captain of our salvation. You think of Christ as King. Do you see him as the rightful king, as a redeeming king, as a resurrected king, as a reigning king, as a royal king, exalted, far above all? The supremacy of the king. Notice something else here in the text very quickly. The subjects of the king. If you go back to our text, notice what it says. Thine eyes shall see the king. Now, who is Isaiah talking about? We'll link it up in the context. Look at verse 15. He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutting his eyes from seeing evil. He shall dwell on high. Here's a description of the spiritual life of these subjects. There are those, I believe, who are saved by the free sovereign grace of God, those who have received the kingship of Jesus Christ in their heart and life, and they're living under his rule. And they know the righteousness of God That's imputed to them by faith That righteousness of God has been implanted In their heart and life by the new birth And that righteousness of God has been Imparted to them in a life of Sanctification and holiness And by the grace of God Their thought is holiness unto the Lord And they're walking Righteously and they're speaking Up rightly and there's things That they don't do They they, they stop their ears from hearing of blood That's to do with murder They 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 shut their eyes from seeing evil. They they, they refuse to look on iniquity. They won't take a bribe. They, They won't be party to that mindset. Could I ask this morning, have you received the kingship of Jesus Christ? There's a story told about Martin Luther. He feared God. He knew enough that he was a sinner. He knew also that God was holy, and he was afraid of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're afraid of God because the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Martin Luther told himself, I have to be holy. I have to be better. I have to um, be sinless to please God. And as a monkey lay on the floor of the Augustinian monastery there in Erfurt, and I have been there, and so has brother George and sister Carol, and he was trying his best not to sin. He was trying his best to love God and to get God to accept him. And you know what he said at one time, lying on the floor in the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt. This he said: "God is cruel. There's no love for God in my heart." I hate God because he's so holy. And I have to be holy. I have to be sinless. I have to be righteous. And I can't be. He prayed. He fasted. He beat his body. He did good works. He gave alms all with a desire to be right and holy and sinless. And it came all to nothing. And he was in absolute defeat and agony of soul. And then he read Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And then he discovered that this perfect righteousness that's necessary in order to be in heaven, well, God has provided it in Christ. And when he put his trust in Christ, God put the righteousness of God to his account through faith in Christ. He became to realize that Jesus Christ did everything for me that's necessary for salvation he was born for me he lived for me he died for me he rose again for me He's coming for me. You see Martin Luther was trying to live a life of loving devotion to Christ he, he gave himself to prayer and fasting and almsgiving and zeal, but he was doing it all the way Before he ever came to faith in Christ before he had received Christ as Lord and Savior before he had received him as his king But once he receive Christ then He was in love with Christ And can I tell you True Bible believing Christianity At the heart It's about loving Christ And about knowing him In the fullness of his person and work I ask again Have you received him as your king I tell you this morning Very truthfully It's impossible to have faith in him And not buy. The need to his dominion and rule in your life. Someone has rightly said. If he's not your king. He's not your redeemer. If he's not the king of your life. He's not the redeemer of your soul. You see regeneration. The new birth is connected to the kingship and lordship of Christ. I ask again. Have you received him as your king? Not only receive him as king these subjects but they recognize his kingship of course not everyone recognizes him many of the jews remember when they were standing before pontius pilate he asked the jews a question um, uh, shall i crucify your king and they cried out we have no king but caesar you see they didn't see him as king they didn't recognize him as king Why? Well, because they'd never received him but the wise men did. Remember, they came asking, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Wise men still seek Jesus. Are you a wise man or a wise woman as you journey through life? Remember the dying thief? Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He saw him as a king. He saw the side in the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He, he realized this is a king with a kingdom. And, and this is a righteous king. This man have done nothing amiss. And before he died... He asked, Lord, remember me. And Jesus said, today shall thou be with me in paradise. You see, by faith, we not only must receive him as king, but we must recognize his person. Remember, he's God in the flesh. He's our creator and provider and preserver. He's our redeemer. Remember his power. We were singing, all heal the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. I go back to Revelation 19 and 6. He's king of kings and lord of lords. You see, he stands head and shoulders above all the kings. And we're to line up all the kings of the earth, past and present. We're to line up all the lords of the earth, past and present. Nobody could stand before him. Nobody could stand beside him because he's head and shoulders above the rest. He's unequaled. He's unparalleled. None could stand against him because he could never be defeated. He could never be opposed. Remember what the Lord said to him in his resurrection? Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Remember, he led captivity captive when he died on the cross. He, he conquered not only Satan, but, but hell and death and sin. And, he, and he's now king forever. Can you recognize his position do you know one of the lovely verses in Psalm 45, and I think it's in the verse 6, and it says um, in Psalm 45, in, in the verse 6, about the kingship of Christ, it, it, it quotes a, a tremendous verse of Scripture. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thy lovest righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. There's his position. Thy throne, O God, is forever. That, that's one of the references to prove Christ's essential deity. He's called God explicitly, one of nine in the Bible. As quoted by the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Good verse for Jehovah's Witnesses. Good verse for the Mormons, the cults. Good verse for the Unitarians. Who's speaking? God the Father. Who's been addressed? God the Son. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And where is Christ? He's on the throne in heaven. And there's no throne higher than His. It's a vast, eternal, unchangeable, unmovable, intrinsically holy throne. In fact, Isaiah says, The heaven is my throne. Do you recognize Him and His person, His power, His purity, His position? Could I ask this? Do you reverence him as king this morning? If he's king of kings and lord of lords, then must we not only receive him and recognize him, but we must reverence him. We we would want to love him. We want to adore him. We want to praise him. We want to worship him. We want to obey him. Our mindset, and I I say this, our mindset ought to be as Christians, all hail King Jesus. If we were to call up to heaven, and we could see the, the, the 24 elders there that represent the whole of the church, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they're before the throne. What are they doing? They're worshiping him that sits on the throne. And they're saying he is worthy to receive honor and glory and power and dominion. Because he's creator, provider and redeemer. It's in the context. Revelation 4, Revelation 5. We'll not turn to it. I want us to think of something else, not only the subjects of the king and the supremacy of the king, but think of the sight of the king. Go back to our text. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. So let me ask this. You're a believer here this morning. Try to imagine in your mind what the king looks like. What's the color of his eyes? Mine are blue. I think that's what drew Rosie to me. What color is his hair? What's his teeth like? What's his face like? What's his hands like? What about his feet? You see, all we have today is artist's impressions of what he looks like. And I believe that no man can really capture with a brush and paint, capture anything of the beauty of Christ. Because no man can really paint God in the flesh. No man can paint him who is the Lord God omnipotent. How could a creature paint God in the flesh? You can't paint a perfect, flawless, faultless redeemer. It can't be done. And you see, what I've asked you isn't really right to ask you. Because to try and imagine what Christ looked like is impossible for us. Think of the many professed images of Christ. It's getting more and more as the day draws near. A pub floor in Scotland's supposed to have an image of the face of Christ, and everybody's flocking to the pub and they're standing there drinking their whiskey and their beer, and they're like, oh, it's wonderful. You're Great Aye Do you know that there's supposed to be An image of Christ in somebody's Frying pan in the kitchen If so you're frying the bacon and the soda bread And the eggs and the, there's a picture of Jesus Mona to see this And everybody's flocking into the kitchen looking over Aye right Another professed image Of the face of Christ was on the top of an electric pole Maybe the man that was up the pole Got a shock, I don't know an image on the wall, an image in a pancake. You see, there have been more images, not only of the supposed sightings of the face of Christ, but supposed images of the Virgin Mary as the mother of God with the baby in her arms, with a halo on her head. I want to tell you, that's a Western image. And we're not told in the Bible what he looked like physically. And we don't remember Christ in a sense after the flesh. The disciples were never told to do this. And you see that's one of the big faults I have with the charismatic movement and the ecumenical movement because they're big divisions of Christ. I and a lot of neo-Pentecostals are big divisions of Christ. And people are flocking to them. Young people are flocking to them. And you know what? Who's getting rich? It's the man in the pulpit. Because he's writing books and telling stories and you have to pay To get the books and to hear the stories And many are being deceived Do you know there's a story told about a man I'll take time to tell you this He claimed to have a vision that he was brought up into heaven And he was introduced to King Jesus His eyes saw the king And the Lord Jesus was very sad and sorrowful this is what was told in one of our churches in Northern Ireland not so long ago. And this is what was told. This man who'd got this vision, who was brought up into heaven, a bit like the Apostle Paul. There's the Lord Jesus, he's met him in heaven, and he's sorry. He's sad. And this man goes and puts his arm around Christ to comfort him. And he tells the story in the church, and everybody's praising and clapping. Do you know something? It's all a lie, it's all false. Because I'll tell you, when thine eyes see him, when you get a sight of him, the supremacy of him overcomes you. And you become a subject. You not only receive him and recognize him, but you so reverence him, you fall at his feet. And that's what we read in the scriptures. How do we see him? Oh, we see him by faith. We don't have to use an imagination or use a a canvas painted by an artist. We see him as we read the Holy Scriptures. Because the Scriptures testify of Christ. The Scriptures is Christocentric. It's all about Christ. And we learn about his work. We learn about his willingness to do that work. We learn that he's a most wonderful person. We, We learn about his words. We learn he's lovely in his character, his conversation, his conduct. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. You see, this is a promised sight of Christ. Thine eyes shall see. And of course, one day we'll not only see him by faith, but we'll see him face to face. And we'll not have to use any imagination. We'll see him as he is. And this is a personal sight, because not only will we see him by faith and by sight, but we'll see him with our own eyes. As he is today in heaven. Read Revelation 1 when you go home. Read Song of Solomon. Chapter 5. Especially from verse 10. I I wouldn't have the ability to preach it. The late Dr. Paisley preached a powerful message. On the words he is altogether lovely. Go and listen to it. And I'll tell you. You'll get a sight of Christ that will thrill your soul. As he is now in heaven. And read Revelation 1. It's the same thing. But this will be a perfect sight. Today we see through a glass darkly, but then we're going to see him as he is in heaven. We'll see him face to face. Think of this as we finish. Amen. The splendor of the king. Notice these words. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. Not only his supremacy, not only his subjects, not only a sight of the king, but the splendor of the king. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans, says this. Christ is lovely. Christ is very lovely. Christ is most lovely. Christ is always lovely. Christ is altogether lovely. He preached a whole sermon on that. Those five thoughts. You see, there's a natural beauty that belongs to him for the fact that he is God. He's glorious and holiness, fearful and praises, doing wonders. He's the God man. He's a perfect manhood. He's a perfect uh, man who never sinned in thought and word and deed. We could think about the sinlessness of Christ. We we could think about this natural beauty because not only of his person and his power, but because of his position, he sits in sovereign dominion and rules as king over the earth. We could think about his eternal kingship as we could his eternal sonship. The, the, The beauty and glory of total dominion over the church and its creatures, over this world and all its ways. You know, there's a lovely wee verse that we read there in the book of Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, um, um, I think it's chapter 1, verse 10, and it says this. No, it's the wrong reference. It doesn't matter. There's a beauty about Christ in his voice, in his face, in his hands, his feet. All connected to his mediatorial office. All connected to the fact that he's a conqueror who's victorious over every foe. He's a prince who's never been defeated. A master who owes allegiance from all his saints. An intercessor who never fails. A brother that's full of grace and love. A forerunner who is gentle and kind who has entered in. There's a natural beauty, there's a notable beauty. See, when we get to heaven, we're not just going to see the gates of pearls, the streets of gold, and the walls of diamonds. We're not even going to see the angels or the tree of life or our redeemed or loved ones, but the focus is being on Christ. Remember the hymn writer says, The bride eyes not her garments, but in her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory but on my King of grace. Will you gaze on the lovely, beautiful Lord Jesus this morning? Maybe you're here and your heart's broken and you're in trouble. And a sight of Christ would do you good because I finish with this. There's a man, a Baptist preacher, I think his name was Ivan Thompson, and he was preaching at a a, a mission. And a lot of people were coming and people were getting saved. And this man who'd got saved at one of the meetings said to Ivan Thompson, was looking out the door, Mr. Thompson, would you have a word for a new convert in Christ? Mr. Thompson, what advice would you give me as a new Christian now to live for Christ? And this is what he told him. Keep looking to Jesus, son. And went on out the door. And the man thought, I've only got saved at your meetings a few weeks ago. And and I've asked you for advice. And you've told me this. Keep looking to Jesus, son. But you know, that was the best advice ever I got. Because when you're in trouble. And your heart's breaking. And there's things that you have no control over. And you're left devastated. And you're struggling. How am I going to get through the week, the day? How am I going to cope with next week? Here's the answer. Keep looking to Jesus. Because there's a natural beauty with Christ. But there's a notable beauty with Christ. But there's a nutritious beauty of Christ. God has a set time to come and reveal himself to you. Now our time is gone this morning. I thank you for coming. I thank you for listening. But I pray the Lord will take this text and he'll fill us with a lovely sight of the Lord Jesus.